We had a couple of just great questions following our study last week. And one of them was a question of the bold judgments. You know, we're in chapter 16. It's all about the bold judgments, that final outpouring of the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. And as we're here in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, in our study, that is, um, the question came up, will these judgments, when they take place, will they hold sway throughout the rest of the tribulation? For example, when the waters of the sea turn to blood, or the waters of the rivers turn to blood, or the darkness falls, is that it for the rest of the time? And the reality is that would incapacitate the entire world. So when you read further in Revelation, you ask the question, well then how do they fight the battle of Armageddon? How does all this other stuff happen? There's no light. There's blood everywhere, so there's no water. When people just die within a matter of months, and that's, and that's true. So we have to look at Scripture to consider what the deal is with these things. Because we're really not told, when you study in Revelation 16, we are not told what the duration is of each one of these plagues, of each of these uh, bold judgments. So to understand that, there are a couple things we can do. One, we can consider the past. So we can go back to the past in scriptural history and see what happened when God plagued. Now you may recall four of the plagues already had happened in a similar fashion against Egypt. Only now... Well, yeah, I know, I know. They hear me and they just get all excited. They're very passionate birds. <laughs> so we just let them tweet and just pay attention to me the best you can. We look back to the plagues of Egypt. There were four plagues that, that were precursors or pictures ahead of time just on Egypt of the worldwide curses in the bold judgments. The Nile being turned to blood as the rivers and the sea are turned to blood in the bold judgments. Darkness covering the land. We see that. We saw um, others. If we look through here, let's see. The loathsome and malignant storms we saw a precursor in Egypt. So in several of these, in at least four of them, there are pictures ahead of time. So we go back to that, Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, and ask, what was, was there a duration for each one of these plagues? And there was. The Nile was bloody, which the Bible tells us, for seven days. Now that doesn't mean that the seas and the ocean will be bloody for seven days, but we know the first judgment, that's the case. For seven days, that the water was blood. Darkness covered the land for three days. Will it be three days during the bowl judgments? I don't know. But we know the original time, the first time, there were three days of darkness. Now, if you're wondering, well, Rick, last week, didn't you say the sun goes supernova? The sun might go supernova. That's, that's a, a, a physical example or maybe a natural uh, explanation for what God may be doing supernaturally. The sun may not go supernova. God might just shut off the light as he did against Egypt. By the way, one of my favorite things that happened during the plagues is when darkness fell on Egypt, the Bible tells us that there was still light in Goshen. In the place where the Israelites were, there was still light. They were fine. So it was only in Pharaoh's region that there was absolute darkness. It's kind of like driving from Mount Vernon out to Anacortes on a rainy day. You know, how the rain always just gets stuck there in Mount Vernon in Burlington. But you head off that highway and you can literally see the light coming down on, on Fidalgo Island. Similar thing. So we consider the past. After each plague, we also know that opportunity came for repentance. And I said, well, Rick, wait a minute. I, I thought you said this, that the bold judgments, this was the point of no return, that there's no longer opportunity for repentance. I didn't say that. I said there wouldn't be any repentance. So it's entirely likely that after each one of these judgments, as they're poured out, that there is a pause. 
where people can consider what's going on. What we see in that pause is the response. And you can look back at verse 11 of Revelation 16. They blasphemed the name of heaven and the name of the God of heaven because of their pains and their sword, and they did not repent of their deeds. It says the same thing in verse 9. They did not repent so as to give God glory. So opportunity for repentance with the Lord all the way down to the last seconds, I believe opportunity for repentance is always there. But as I've said before, I believe we've crossed the line during that seven-year tribulation period where repentance will no longer happen. So we can consider the past. We look back and see the judgments on Egypt. And we say, okay, there was time duration there. There were limits to the way the plagues played out there. Consider the past. We also can consider the future in looking at these judgments. There are more judgments and wars coming in Revelation. And Revelation 18, verse 17 tells us the following. Every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Now we're going to study that in two weeks. That's the fall of commercial Babylon. And the indication what is shown us in that picture is the men on the ship looking across the land, looking from the sea across the land and seeing the smoke of Babylon rising and weeping over the loss. But you understand now, suddenly they're in their ships and they're on the sea. Now when the bowl judgment happens, it turns the sea to blood. The ships are incapacitated. They're not going anywhere. Well now at this point, we see people back on the ships rolling again. So obviously, the blood is a, has a, a shorter time duration. It's not all the way through the end of the tribulation. Okay? I just wanted to kind of answer that and, and try and explain this. Uh, as to how can they fight the battle of Armageddon and all these other things happen. Apparently, when God pours out his wrath in these seven bold judgments, there is a limit to the amount of time. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and pray and we're going to get on into the rest of this chapter. Father, we thank you for blessing us. We even, Lord, thank you for these loudmouth birds. <laughs> but Father, we pray that you will not allow our hearts or our minds to be distracted tonight. Lord, we pray as we open up the pages of Scripture that we will see and hear and know your word. Lord, as you said, we pray that the Spirit would speak and we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church, to this fellowship tonight. And so we rest ourselves in your guidance and your teaching and in your wisdom, Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Now let's move on. These last three and a half years are called what? Who recalls what the last half of the tribulation is called by Jesus? Excellent. The Great Tribulation. The bold judgments are poured out in the last three and a half years, and they are vile. The Greek word for bold here is fiale. It's where we get our medical term, vile. And last week we made the comparison to chemotherapy, and the seven angels who pour out the vials of God's wrath being like chemo angels. And now we come to the sixth bowl, or vial, which is seemingly less horrible than the first five. In fact, when we read the sixth one, we think, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's a big deal, but not in comparison to the others. What does this really mean? And recall the first five with me. There, there were the terror of sores. There were the bloody oceans, bloody rivers, intense heat, and then deep darkness. All of these pretty horrifying judgments. Then we get to number six in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates River, goes dry. Why this river? 
Why does this river go dry? What's the big deal about the Euphrates? If you can see it up there on the PowerPoint slide, it's the yellow, the yellow line down the middle. That's the Euphrates right there. I'm going to leave that up just for a second so you have a perspective as we talk about this, this great river. It's a big river. It runs a long distance. And it's, it's pretty significant in the Bible. In fact, you might want to jot this down if you're taking notes tonight about the Euphrates. It's the cradle of civilization. You may recall the Euphrates was connected to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, I'll read this to you. tells us a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Four rivers, we're told, marks the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. What's interesting to me, it's fascinating actually, when you look up there, you see the Euphrates. If you look up just, just I believe, above it, yeah, you can barely see it if you look closely, the Tigris. Where the word Euphrates is there on the PowerPoint slide, look directly across to the right, and you might be able to see Tigris. So that's the Tigris River. It was between those two rivers that Eden existed. So somewhere in there. We don't know exactly where, and nobody's ever found it. Of course, if they had, they'd, they'd meet up with an angel with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to the way of the Tree of Life, and it wouldn't do us any good to go in there anyway. But four rivers mark the boundaries of Eden. The, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Tigris and Euphrates, again, flowing still today. The Pishon and the Gihon remain undiscoverable, and different uh, ideas about that have been offered, possibly because of the flood. The flood changed the waterways of the world when it happened. So maybe at that point, those two rivers that would have flown, uh, that would have connected the Tigris and the Euphrates, no longer exist and, and have never been found. But they have, may have been simply tributaries connecting those two bigger rivers. The Tigris and the Euphrates, again, are the oldest named rivers that we have, bordering the region called the Fertile Crescent. Now, if you're thinking all the way back to high school geography, you may remember that phrase, the Fertile Crescent. The beginning of Western civilization, of any civilization as we know it. These two rivers bordered the ancient Mesopotamia. As a matter of fact, the word Mesopotamia gets its name from these two rivers because Mesopotamia means between the rivers. So that ancient land was between the Tigris and the Euphrates. What amazes me is that even today, this old river rising in Turkey, flowing through Syria and Iraq, runs right through Baghdad, Baghdad. it's back at the center of things. We all are aware of it. The Euphrates, as I showed you the picture before, I'm going to go ahead and go back to that. Well, no, let's leave that up a second. But you saw that picture of the, of the American patrol boat on the Euphrates River. And you can see that picture again in just a moment. But Iraq is at the center of things going on. Jerusalem is at the center of the world today. Here we are in 2006, and the focus and the attention of the entire world is right back where it all started. It's right back in the Middle East, right back there where the Euphrates flows. The Euphrates River divides the east from the west. It's a massive river. It's 1,800 miles long. It runs at an average of 30 feet deep, spanning a distance anywhere from 300 to 1,200 feet across, and its annual flow is 12, or no, sorry, 28 billion cubic meters. That would be 990 billion cubic feet of water flow through the Euphrates on an annual basis. It's also, and this is why I want to leave this up just a little bit longer here, the Euphrates is also the boundary of the promised land. The Euphrates is. If you look at that map, it's amazing. 
God says, Abraham, all the way from the Nile River, which isn't even on the map, it's over there to the left, past where you see the Red Sea at the very bottom. From the Nile River, all the way across to the Euphrates, those are the eastern and western boundaries of the Promised Land. It's huge. It's so much larger than anything that we can imagine. And today, if you look over, probably right here, up in this corner, you can see Jerusalem. Israel barely gets out as far as Jerusalem. It's a tiny little spot of a map, and the boundary of the Promised Land is all that. It's 300,000 square miles, is what God promised Abraham. Not 30,000, as we've talked about, being the size of Israel in its glory days during Solomon's reign, and not what it is today, not even close. It's land that the Jewish people will have again. So, the boundary of the whole promised land, Genesis 15 tells us, it's the Euphrates to the north and the west, and it's the Nile to the south and to the east. So all the talk about the West Bank today in Israel, the West Bank of the Jordan is not, is not the West Bank of the Promised Land. The West Bank of the Euphrates River would be the West Bank of God's Promised Land for the people of Israel. So truly, the Euphrates is the cradle of civilization. It's right there where life began, where Eden existed, where the Promised Land was offered to Abraham. The cradle of civilization, but it also is the grave of civilization. For the Euphrates River borders the last battle. Now back to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. Back to this verse, why then is the Euphrates dried up? What is the purpose of this? We read it in the verse, it's so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. To prepare for the kings of the east. That's how your Bibles read, am I correct? says from the kings of the east. If you were going to literally translate that, what it would read is that the way would be prepared for the kings of the rising sun. That's an important distinction. Can anyone describe for me the flag of Japan? The flag, of Japan? The flag. that would be Mexico. The flag of Japan, what is it? It's a rising sun. It's a rising sun, that red sun on that white background. And even China has also been called the land of the rising sun. Those are the, the lands to the east. And so both today and historically, it's the emblem of Japan and China. Now think back to the earlier sixth trumpet judgment. And I'll read to you, Revelation 9.16 tells us the numbers of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, if you're sharp, you know the number of the armies of the horsemen. That was a demonically driven army. That 200 million. When it describes the horses, it describes fire coming out of their mouths. When it describes the riders, it, it, it's pretty demonic in its picture. But I believe there's a connection here. That this 200 million person army is demonically driven, but I believe it is made up of 200, 200 million people that are going to come from the east. The armies of the east. The armies from the kings of the rising sun. Now we invaded Iraq just shy of 300,000 foot soldiers. Compare 300,000 to 200 million. There's never been an army the size of it on the face of the planet. Never in history have we seen an army of 200 million people. Now again, you may, you may recall this fact that when John wrote Revelation, there weren't 200 million people on the planet. This number was massive. Let me inject another little thought to you here. There are those who say that John picked the number 1,000 for the 1,000-year reign in Revelation 20. He kind of picked that number because he was trying to come up with a big number and he couldn't conceive of really big numbers because he wasn't as intelligent back then as we are now. We're so arrogant. He writes down 200 million. 
John could conceive of some large numbers. He could think of, conceive of, large numbers like that, even in the face of a world that wasn't even populated by that many people. A 200 million man army. Some say it's overwhelmingly vast. Maybe John here was just going for effect. It couldn't possibly, literally, be fulfilled. When could any nation come up with a 200 million man army? And the answer to that is 1961. If you were listening to the radio at the time, I wasn't, wasn't quite born yet. But Radio Peking, which is now Radio Beijing, boasted the following, that China alone could mobilize a militia in five months of 200 million men. That was just China. Let me give you some more statistics about this. Right now, one-fourth of all people on Earth today live in China. One out of four. That adds to uh, up to over 1.5 billion people in China alone. If you've got 1.5 billion people, 200 million is a doable number, isn't it? Furthermore, years ago it was mandated that each couple could only have one child in China to, to, to quell this population explosion. That each couple could only have one child. As a result, massive abortions occur in China every year, especially girls. If a couple has a child and it's a girl, there is a likelihood that she will be aborted. 85% of all births over the past several years in China have been male. Which is another reason why maybe these guys want to go to war. <laughs> Think about that. If 9 out of 10 children born in this generation are boys, it makes 9 boys for every 1 girl. So, of course, these guys are going to want to go to war. But beyond that, think about this. The sociological implications are staggering for China. What an absolute mess. Now, from time to time, people will ask me, Rick, why do you think that we're in the last days? You really do believe that we're in the last times. I do. And one of the reasons is simply this. If China is part of the, the kings of the east, which is indicated in scripture, that are going to come across and fight, they don't have a whole lot of time. Because ultimately they're going to come up in a generation or so having nine boys for every one woman and they're not going to be able to repopulate their, their country. They're going to begin to die out and not to exist at all. If left to just run their course, give them a hundred years and they won't exist. So I think the, t the clock is running here. Time is running out. We are um, interconnected, by the way, in the world today in beyond Babel proportions. The problem with Babel, if you go back to Genesis and think through that, that whole Tower of Babel situation, was all of mankind was so connected in one place and attempting to do one thing that God said, His words, He said, they're going to be able to do anything they put their minds to. Because they're all of one voice and of one mind and they're all working together on this and this is not a good thing. And so God spread out man across the face of the planet. He mixed up the languages so that we couldn't do that. We no longer have mixed up languages. We have the internet. We can communicate with anybody, anywhere, any way that we would like to. We are beyond where they were at Babel in our day. And there is an immorality that is rotting and a decay among mankind from the inside out and it's leaving us with this whole mess that we're looking at in the world today and wonder how much time is there. Now consider this regarding the kings of the rising sun. What would happen if you could merge the technological power of Japan, all of their technology and smarts, with the manpower of China? Put that together. You'd have an Asian coalition. 
Just this week, if you've been watching the news, you know North Korea has a missile, a long-range missile that they're about ready to test, that they believe can reach the shores of the United States from North Korea. North Korea is seeking also to be a nuclear power, and things are heating up dramatically over there. North Korea also would be of that coalition from the rising sun. China, Japan, North Korea, Asian cultures in the east, the kings of the rising sun. And one more thing about this, the kings of the rising sun is plural, kings, not just one king. So we are talking about multiple Asian countries coming together to cross that dried up Euphrates River. And the Lord is doing it as one of the judgments here. Now, if this army comes, there's a result of all this. A third of the population of Earth will be mowed down as this army rolls on their way. Across the Pan-Asian Highway, by the way, that Pan-Asian Highway was completed back in the 80s. So they have a way across. The big problem for, for a Chinese army or an Asian army at this point coming into the, the land across the Euphrates is the Euphrates itself. But if it dries up, the way is now made wide open and they'll have no trouble coming across that empty riverbed. Why are they marching west? Why then, and what's the deal? Why are they ready to come across that Euphrates at this point in time in history, at the end of the tribulation period here? Look at verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which will go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Three frog-like demon messengers here come out from the unholy trinity, that is Satan, the dragon, Antichrist, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet, that is the beast from the land. And they, these, these three in this unholy trinity, they vomit up these unclean frogs, these spirits. They're, they're not frogs, but they're described to look like frogs. And they come out, and they head out into the rest of the world. Why frogs? Why frogs? Flip back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Excuse me, Exodus chapter 8. Looking at verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. How does that sound? <laughs> and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls, frog soup. So the frogs will come up upon you and your people and all of your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up, and they covered the land of Egypt. Now there are some interesting Egyptian frog facts that you might want to know. Frogs, first of all, were connected in some of the most ancient forms of nature worship, pantheism and paganism. The Egyptians even had a female de deity with a frog's head. I think she'd have trouble getting dates in America today. But God targeted, it's interesting, if you look at all of the plagues, he targeted with every single one of the ten plagues against Egypt, he targeted an Egyptian god with each one. He just picked them off one at a time. Even coming down to the last plague, that plague which took out the firstborn of all Egypt, 
he came against all of their gods and proved himself to be the one true God. Something else about frogs, they're born in mud and they live in mud and they are a perfect picture of sin. In the shallows and in the mud and in the muck and in the slime, that's where they like to live. And it portrays sin to a degree. But the frogs in the second plague of Egypt went everywhere. They went into the homes, the kitchens, and as we read, even the bedrooms. And not just the bedrooms of the people, but the bedrooms of the rulers themselves. Psalm 105 verse 30 tells us their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. Now there's some similarities between the frogs of Egypt. I'm going to go back here. There's some similarities between the frogs of Egypt to these three demonic frogs. First off, just as the Egyptian frogs symbolize false gods, so these frogs are demonic spirits. Now just a side note here for you, remember this, that's all false gods are in the world. There's no such thing as a benign, a benign false god. Someone said, no, I worship this, or I worship that, or I worship the other. There is no such thing as a benign false god, or one that just doesn't truly exist. False gods are entities. What do you mean? Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, or chapter 10, verse 20. He says, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers, Paul says, in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What Paul says about false gods in the world is they are not non-entities. False gods are demons. They are true entities, but they're demonic by nature, and they're deceptive by nature, and when people go after the worship of what they think of as different gods, they are truly simply worshiping demons. In the New Age movement, when people say, I'm channeling a spirit, they're channeling a demon. When someone calls up in, in, in seances, tries to call up the spirit of someone who's dead, that's not the spirit of someone who's dead. It's a demon who is deceiving. And the Bible's very clear about this. And Paul says you can't drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. So, the second thing about these frogs, just like frogs who are born and live in the muck and the mud, these frogs are vomited out of the muck of Satan and they are drenched in sin. By the way, these frogs secrete, uh, they're, sorry, there are um, frogs out there that are called poison dart frogs. You've heard of those, but poison dart frogs that secrete one of the deadliest toxins known to man, and there's enough poison in their tiny bodies to kill up to ten humans. Poison dart frogs. So you want to avoid those. Not a good thing. But sin gang is capable of far worse. Of far more destruction. Far awful things than a poison dart frog. But the Exodus frogs also, though they went everywhere in Egypt, these frogs now, back in Revelation 16, go everywhere in the world. They remind me a bit of the character in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers. If you, if you saw that trilogy or watched that, but there was a character in that trilogy whose name was Wormtongue. Wormtongue was an advisor to a king, but he was a very deceitful advisor. And he does nothing but whisper evil, life-draining things into the ear of the king of Rohan. Over and over, he whispers lies. He whispers deceit. And this particular king falls into a haze where he's no longer in control. And it's an apt depiction of exactly what's going on here with these frog-like demons. Look back at it again. It says that these unclean spirits, these spirits of demons, perform signs that go out into the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. These demon frogs, these demon spirits, are going to the kings. And what are they saying? They're coming up to the kings. They're whispering in their ears. They're saying, go to Megiddo. 
Go to Megiddo. Go to Megiddo. Bring your armies. Go to Megiddo. The time has come to fight. And literally, as an act of Satan, he will gather all the armies to Megiddo to fight. Satan does this. By the way, he does this undercutting and undermining Antichrist, who is his own servant. Absolutely amazing to deceit. You see this, this so-called unholy trinity of Satan and the, and the false prophet and Antichrist, but Satan is not working with them. Ultimately, he has one plan in mind, and even though that means their total destruction as his co-workers, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter. At the end of the battle, Antichrist is completely left out to dry in a stunning moment. Now, Antichrist deserves it. Don't feel bad for him. But Satan is doing what Satan always does. He is deceiving. And he's drawing all the nations together for this massive battle to create the greatest amount of bloodshed that he possibly can. And he pulls off a great, great deception. It's, by the way, the second to last greatest deception of Satan is this invitation to Armageddon. There will be one more that is surprisingly happening at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. But we'll talk about that later. Now, Jesus goes on, verse 15, and you may notice parentheses in your scriptures. Parentheses are there for a reason. It's a parenthetical statement. Jesus inserts this at just the right time. Here we are, almost at the end of the great tribulation of these bold judgments, and Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Jesus says, I'm coming. Keep your shirt on. Stay awake. I'm on the way. And this picture that he gives here is one of someone lying in bed, eyes wide open, fully dressed and expecting the Lord to come at any minute. Lying there just ready, watching, waiting. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now I want you to consider something with this verse. Who is it that the thief in the night catches by surprise? It's not supposed to be believers. We're not the ones who are caught off guard by the thief in the night. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, You brethren are not in darkness, but the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober and self-controlled. He is only a thief for those who are caught off guard. Jesus is only a thief in the night for those who are surprised at his coming, not ready for his coming, unaware of his return. He's only a thief for those ultimately who are left behind. Those who are taken will have been waiting for him all along. Now, who is this parenthetical encouragement spoken for? Because we get down here again through chapter 16, and suddenly Jesus just kind of out of the blue says, Oh, by the way, hey, remember, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his clothes, and will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. Who is Jesus encouraging here? Well, a couple of different groups of people. First off, he's encouraging John and the church of the first century. He's saying, these things are terrifying, but I'm coming. Life for you is hard, but I'm on the way. Hang in there, persevere, I'm coming soon. Jesus is also, I believe, talking to the church of the church age. That's across the last 2,000 years. For any church, any body of people who are struggling, any individual Christians who are having a hard time, Jesus says, hey, keep your shirt on, I'm almost there. I'm coming. Hang in there with me. But I believe Jesus also had these words written for the tribulation saints. For there may be some who are surviving throughout the entire tribulation, who are watching these final judgments come down. Believers in Jesus, 
We talked about them, those who are saved in that massive soul harvest that happens during the first half of the tribulation. People who actually come to faith in Jesus after the church has already been taken out. And those people who are surviving, who are still alive and around at the time, who don't take the mark of the beast, who haven't taken that sign, but who believe in Jesus, are going to see all of these judgments coming down. And as awful and terrible as they are, Jesus says, hey, I know it's bad, but look at where you're at. The Euphrates just dried up. Guess what? I'm almost there. I'm coming. The kings from the east, they're coming too. But behold, don't be caught off guard. Not now. I am almost there. I believe he's also talking to the remnant of Jews in hiding. Now, you might say, why would you think this? Well, Jesus wrote scripture. The Bible is written for all people of all times. And as we come down to the end, there are going to be those left here during the tribulation who miss the rapture. There are going to be those Jewish people who become that final remnant. And I'll tell you what I'd be doing if I was one of them. I would be studying, 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 studying the book of Revelation. I would be tracking every single thing going on and testing it against the word to see, okay, that just happened. Okay, so that's where we are right now. I'd be following it through. And I believe that's what's going to happen. They'll be studying it. They'll be looking for insights. And they will be watching it as an actual roadmap of those last days. Verse 16. It says, And they, speaking of these frog-like demons, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Some of your Bibles just say Armageddon. Some say Har-Megiddo. It's the mountain of Megiddo. It's that great valley of the great warfare. Hebrew, the Hebrew word Har means mountain. The Hebrew word Megiddo actually means rendezvous. For this is the mountain of rendezvous. Now at this place, many bloody rendezvous have happened in the shadow of this mountain. In this valley, there have been multiple battles fought there. The valley, by the way, is approximately 60 miles north of Jerusalem, but it runs all the way down ultimately through Jerusalem. In the Kidron Valley, goes through that and on down as far down south as Basra, south of Jerusalem, outside of the country or the nation of Israel today. And as we've previously studied, the Jezreel Valley, which is also Megiddo, same valley, Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley, valley of Megiddo, it's a massive valley famous for both historical and prophetic warfare. Let me give you some historical context. Judges, chapter 4. Deborah led Israel in battle over Sisera in the Valley of Megiddo. Judges chapter 7, Gideon's army fought a great battle for the Lord there. As a matter of fact, one of the places that will be visited when we go to Israel is Gideon's Springs. We will go to the spot where Gideon and his men stopped to drink of the water, where his army was whittled down from thousands to 300 men. It's an awesome story. But Gideon with his 300 fought that great battle there. Judges 15, Samson took out the Philistines in this same exact valley. 1 Samuel 31, Saul and John died on Mount Gilboa overlooking Megiddo. 1 Kings 18, Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, again overlooking the valley of Megiddo. 2 Chronicles 35, King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho at a battle, again, here at Har Megiddo. And it's even, it even is looked down upon or the overlook of Jesus' boyhood home, Nazareth. Up on Mount Precipice looks down on the valley of Megiddo. One of the stunning things about northern Israel is recognizing how much happened right there. 
across all of biblical history. You go from one mountain to the next, and you're looking down on this same valley. You look across from Mount Carmel, and you can see Mount Gilboa. Saul and Jonathan died here. Elijah fought the prophets of Baal here. And there's Jesus' boyhood home there. It all happened in one place. Some of the most amazing occurrences in all of world history, right there in little Israel. It's an important place to the Lord. Now, Armageddon, surrounded by the mountains of Israel, is the prime location of all that's going to happen in this last day. And you've got to see it. So that, again, that's my, my little plug. I'm going to keep giving plugs. Go to Israel. The frogs are saying, go to Megiddo. I'm saying, go to Israel. Go to Israel. You've got to be there. You've got to see it. But that's not all. Historically, the Muslims, the Turks, the Syrians, the Egyptians, they all fought. They all bled. They all died here at Armageddon. And even Europeans recall Napoleon's disastrous march when he marched directly by this mountain of rendezvous on the way to his little problem. Well, here at the end, all the armies of the nations will be deceived into coming together for this massive war unlike any other. What is up Satan's sleeve? Why is he doing this? Why is he drawing them all together? A couple of reasons. Number one, to devour Israel. That's been on Satan's plate from day one. Devour Israel, destroy the people, destroy the land. Satan is the supreme anti-Semite. In his warped mind, he thinks if he can devour Israel, he can somehow demolish Bible prophecy. If he can destroy Israel, then he can make all of God's promises to Israel null and void. This is how twisted his mind is. So, number one, Satan's attempt here is to destroy Israel. Secondly, he wants to destroy God's children. Whoever may still be alive at this time, if in fact there are still tribulation saints alive on the earth, he wants to destroy the tribulation saints as well as those of Israel. And number three, he wants to determine who will rule. And this is one of the most amazing things of all. Satan knows that he ultimately will encounter the Lord at Megiddo. He has that piece of information. It's in our Bibles. He knows that's going to happen. And I think that he is still actually holding out for one last shot to defeat Jesus. I think he's actually arrogant enough to think that maybe he can pull it off. And so he sends out these demons to gather all the armies of the world. And he thinks in all the confusion, in all the warfare, in all the battle, maybe, maybe, maybe he can do it. You might ask, how can Satan be so blind? How is it possible? If he would just read what we're reading even tonight, he would know he has no power, that he is going to be rendered powerless, that he's going to be bound for a thousand years, and then ultimately cast in the lake of fire. How can he be so blind? Remember when they pulled Saddam Hussein out of his hidey hole? Remember that year or two ago now? Do you remember what the first thing he said was to, to those who pulled him out? He, he didn't even say, I surrender. He said... I'm Saddam Hussein, the ruler of Iraq, and I'm willing to negotiate now. Negotiate, dude, get a shave. <laughs> Clip your nails and we'll talk. He still, at that point, was using the language of a king, though he was a slave in a hole about to be thrown into prison. <clears throat> Completely deceived, and this is what arrogance does. Now, I want to flip back. We've done a little bit of this, but go back to Daniel chapter 11. I want you to look one more time and consider... Uh, Satan's battle plan here, Daniel 11. Satan's battle plan for Har Megiddo. Daniel chapter 11, looking at verse 40. Daniel 
No. <laughs> it's a great book. Daniel is awesome. And it's awfully tempting. What? Yeah, we're getting there. We are. We're just about done with numbers. We got Deuteronomy. We will have finished the entire Torah. Hallelujah. And then we'll just go going on. Anyway, Daniel chapter 11. Back at it. Verse 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with these interruptions, it will be 10 years. <laughs> Daniel 11.40 At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Him is Antichrist in this passage. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. And he will enter uh, countries, overflow them, and pass through them. He will also enter the beautiful land. And many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Now, verse 40, looking back, Antichrist is headquartered at this time in Babylon, which will be very significant in the next two studies that we do, chapter 17 and 18. Antichrist will be headquartered there, and the kings of the south, that is Egypt and northern Africa, launch an insurrection against Antichrist. Then, immediately following that, the king of the north, which would be Russia, or at least uh, some form of a government coming down out of what is today Russia, will enter the fray. And for those of us who think, well, Russia had their heyday, they're no longer a, a true threat for us anymore, then why do they continue to build attack shelters, bunkers, and under, underground facilities? Did you know Russia's still doing that? They're still preparing for defense and for war. Seemingly, anti-war countries are not anti-war because they're peaceful. They're anti-war because they're building up. It's also interesting that Russia and China have significantly warmed up to each other. Interesting bedfellows. You've got Russia, China, France, Germany. Russia still has a significant role to play as this drama unfolds on the world stage. So Antichrist and his army are going to march on. They're going to decimate those in their way. They're going to pick up the Libyans and the Ethiopians as allies. And then enter the kings of the rising sun. Verse 40, where are we? 42 or so. Starting from 42. He will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And then here we go. The Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Then verse 44. The rumors from the east, from the east and from the north, will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So he's waging his wars here, and apparently, apparently, and I just point this out because it's interesting to me, apparently unbeknownst to Antichrist, now, Satan has got armies coming from everywhere for his true agenda. Antichrist has one agenda to destroy and decimate, but now he's hearing rumors from the north and from the east. Uh-oh, okay, we've got to get back over there because we've got to fight them too. And so he's rolling forward, and he's got all of his battle plans going on. And the kings of the rising sun enter the fray, and it tells us, verse 45, that he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Where is that? It's on the plains of Israel. In fact, it's right here at Har Megiddo. Antichrist is going to pitch his pavilions there and prepare for the great battle right there, the battle of Armageddon. Now he's going to fortify there. It'll be his command center for an all-out war. And at this point, Satan is finally done with him. Listen to the end of it. It says, it says yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Not even the satanic driving of Satan. 
at that point Antichrist is completely on his own left in the lurch listen Satan has no loyalties he is nothing more than a user you ever hear of a kid named Sean Sellers Sean Sellers was the youngest uh, youngest boy to sit on death row in Oklahoma he was 17 years old when he murdered his parents Sean Sellers was a devil worshipper a Satan worshipper he had a shrine to Satan all set up in his bedroom and one night he walked out of his bedroom got a hold of his father's shotgun walked into his parents bedroom and shot them both dead in their beds then he went back into his room and began his rituals and the next morning when he woke up he hadn't even remembered that he did it what did Satan do for Sean Sellers well Sean Sellers sat in death row and was interviewed by some different Christians, James Dobson among, among them. And Sean Sellers said, you know, he promised me power. He promised me wealth. He promised me all kinds of things. But when he was done with me, he was done with me. Sean Sellers eventually was executed on death row. However, it said that Sean Sellers gave his life to Jesus after the fact. Satan is a user. And when Satan's strategy fails, he moves on to somebody else to use them. And as this battle rages out of control, now go on just a bit further, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. As the battle of Armageddon is just raging, something amazing happens. Verse 1 tells us, at that time, Michael, the great prince, Michael, this is the archangel Michael, who stands guard over the sons of your people, that is Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. What does Michael have to do with all this? Some have suggested that Michael himself, that angelic protector, protector of Israel, may be the angel who pours out the seventh bowl judgment. Flip back over to Revelation 16. Well, is it Michael or is it not? Well, while you're flipping there, I'll, I'll give you a decisive answer. I have no idea. But with this last bowl, the wrath of God will be finished. Watch this. It's going on now, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. You might want to write in your margins, It is finished. This is one word in the Greek. It's the word teleos. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. Now this verse could well describe the last desperate massive nuclear detonations in all of history. I don't think so. Because again we see these are being poured out from, from, the, the tent, from heaven by angels on the earth. This is not of man's doing. This is of God's doing. It is a massive, massive destruction by the hand of God. His wrath comes down with full and final force. This judgment can be comparable to the flood, but it's worse. And massive topographical changes will take place. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. This is not an earthquake in Indonesia. This is not an earthquake in San Francisco. This is an earthquake on the entire planet all at once. Think about that for a moment. We have seen in the last, in, in recent years, some absolutely devastating earthquakes. Often in Indonesia, often in places removed from us here in America. But when you see upwards of seven, eight, nine thousand lives being taken by an earthquake, 
When you see over 100,000 lives taken by a tsunami, these natural disasters are stunning, but they are nothing like the natural disaster, the supernatural disaster of this final earthquake that will be worldwide and completely devastating. Verse 19 says the great split city was split into three parts. So Jerusalem is going to be divided into three parts. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The great city. Now I just told you it's Jerusalem. Some say, well that's Babylon that is being talked about there. But it's got to be Jerusalem. Why? Revelation 14 verse 19 says, The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The, the winepress was trodden where? Outside the city. The city of Jerusalem. The same city here where all of this is happening. The cities of the nations fell and that great city is going to be split into three parts. Verse 20 says, Every island fled away, bye-bye Whitby, and the mountains were not found. See you later, Rainier. So all of it, coast, history, the world in this earthquake will change. The islands will melt away into the sea. The mountains will be flattened. This world is not going to look the same ever again. There will be a completely different planet. And a lot of it happening in this seventh judgment that happens. Every island swallowed up. Mountains flattened. There's never been a seismic shift like this. And it's not just a continental drift. It's a continental worldwide nightmare. And nowhere on earth will be exempt from this. Verse 21 says, huge hailstones, I want you to try and imagine this if you can, huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. That's all the seventh bowl of God's wrath. Earthquake worldwide and hundred pounds hailstones, and to get a picture of that, in Texas and in the Midwest, there are often hailstorms, and it's said that they've had hailstones coming down the size of softballs, not that big, which massively destroy cars, which destroy homes, which destroy property, that big. We took Hayden and Corey bowling just last week. 16-pound bowling ball, that big. Magnify that to 100. 100-pound hailstones raining down on the earth, flattening the earth, pummeling the earth. And what are the human beings doing at the time? They're blaspheming. Blaspheming God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. They're doing what they've been doing through the whole entire chapter, through the whole entire series, the final series of judgments, these vile judgments, the bold judgments. They are blaspheming God over and over and over. But listen to this. It's interesting that the very last thing to happen here is a judgment of hailstones coming down because the Old Testament tells us something about blasphemy. Let me read this to you. Leviticus 24:15. If anyone curses his God, he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. Shall stone him. That's the punishment for blasphemy. Stoning. And that's exactly what God does here in the seventh judgment. The seventh bowl of judgment is he stones the earth, which has been blaspheming his name over all of these judgments. 
people are still calling out, crying out the name of God, but not in worship, not in repentance, in blasphemy. Now, I want you to think about something. Catholicism offers purgatory. In other words, if you die, you go to purgatory first. And if you still have unpaid for sins, you stay in purgatory for a certain degree of time. And once you've paid for those sins, then you get to get out and go on to heaven. The Bible says nothing about this. It's not a biblical concept whatsoever. As far as the Bible is concerned, if you go to hell, you're in hell. Period. You don't get out. You go to heaven, you're not going to be involved in hell. You're not going to go pay for what happened. And you might even ask the question, because I think this theology of purgatory literally comes out of a merciful heart. It comes from someone saying, well, isn't there a possibility that someone might change their mind once they really receive punishment? The reality, gang, is that, is that wrath, wrath doesn't bring about repentance. What does the Lord tell us? That it's His kindness. Don't you know God's kindness leads you to repentance? It's not wrath. Wrath just makes people more angry. And so here as God's wrath is being poured out, the blasphemy is intensifying. And if you're wondering, well, why not just give them some time? Why not send someone to purgatory, give them a hundred years to burn off their blasphemies? Gain blasphemy, it's the language of hell. And I firmly believe that if you could open up hell after a hundred years, or, or maybe after a thousand years, or a billion years, what you would still hear once you opened up that doorway to hell is blasphemy. People are not going to change their minds. I um, heard about a couple of guys who died. One was named Frank Sam, and his friend was named Sam Frank. And they both died on the same day, and Frank Sam actually went to heaven. It's wonderful for him. Sam Frank died and went to hell. But after uh, spending some time in heaven, uh, Frank Sam told the Lord, you know, I miss my friend Sam Frank. Could I go down and, and maybe just visit him for a while? Y'all look so serious. This is a joke. Can I go visit my friend down in hell, Sam Frank? And he says, yeah, but listen, two things you've got to remember. If you go do this, you, when you come back for me to let you back in, you've got to remember your heart and you've got to remember your wings. Don't leave him down there. Okay, okay, Lord, that's great. So Frank Sam leaves heaven and goes down to hell to visit his friend Sam Frank. He gets down there and finds out that his friend has, a, has basically a, a, a place for dancing, music, and spinning balls, a disco down there. Great place. And so Frank Sam has a good time with his old friend Sam Frank. They're down there for a while. And then it's time to go back up. And he goes up to heaven and, and knocks on the gates and says, Okay, Lord, let me in. And the Lord says, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. Well, why not? Well, you left your wings and you don't have your harp. He goes, Oh, I left my harp in Sam Frank's disco. <laughs> That punchline. <laughs> Just want to see if you're still with me. So, okay, we're going to end this. Let's look at the end here. <laughs> I love that joke. Painful, but it's a good joke. All right. <laughs> All right, we're going to see the end of these things culminate over the next three chapters. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 will represent, and you need to mark this, they will represent a very short period of time. What we've seen in Revelation 16 in this one chapter is we've seen three and a half years. You get to 17 and 18, and those are going to come down to a very short period of time. In fact, chapter 18 happens in the span of one hour. It's one hour long for the whole chapter, which is about right for the teaching. Next week, I will, by the way, finally tell you the identity of Antichrist. So if you're wondering who Antichrist is going to be, I'm going to give you a name next week. 
Not tonight, but next week. Sorry, Hunter. <laughs> if you're out of town, you're just going to have to figure it out on your own. <laughs> so that'll be next week, but I want to conclude tonight with this final thought. And listen just for a moment. Verse 17. The last three words of verse 17. It is done. Literally, it is finished. Specifically, teleos. We've heard this before. This is the exact same phrase that Jesus spoke as his last three words on the cross. John 19:28 tells us, After these things, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. Now listen, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. They put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He said, teleos. What is it in verse 19 that tells us? God gives Babylon, God gives the world the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Jesus has the sour wine on the cross. And when he has that wine, he cries out these words. Actually, for us, three words. For him, one word, teleos. It is finished. And John says at that point, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At Megiddo, Jesus will complete the mission of justice. Teleos. It will be finished at Megiddo. And that justice will be completed, will be finished by the pouring out of man's blood. However, at Calvary 2,000 years ago, Jesus completed the mission of mercy. Mercy. And we have that choice we've talked about many times recently. We can come under the judgment of God or we can come under the mercy of God. The judgment of God will be poured out at Megiddo and in the ensuing white throne judgment, which we'll talk about in Revelation 20. The mercy of God was poured out at Calvary by Jesus' blood, the blood of the Son of Man. He drank the cup of the wine of God's fierce wrath, verse 19 tells us. And the seventh bowl judgment is not a bowl at all. It's a cup. It is the cup of wrath. And we've seen this specific cup before, by the way. We've read about and heard this cup mentioned. Jesus referred to it in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. It says in Luke 22:41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray. And he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, but being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What is the cup Jesus is referring to? It is the cup of God's wrath. It is the cup of divine wrath. Jesus says, please, don't allow this cup to fall on me. And yet, not as I will, but as you will, and Jesus drank the cup of his wrath. The exact same cup that we see now poured out on planet Earth, Jesus drank fully. When Jesus hung on the cross, he fully experienced God's wrath. It's the only way that you and I could be saved. He didn't miss a single ounce. What we see in this horrifying judgment, these vile judgments, these bowl judgments or even cup judgments being poured out on the earth, all of this... As bad as it is, Jesus experienced at Calvary. He bore this wrath on himself at the cross. He drank this cup in our stead. Listen, if you are looking forward to the day that you get grace, if you're looking forward to the time when finally it will all come together and you will have the grace of God, you will miss it. 
Don't look forward to grace. Look back to grace because grace happened past tense. God's grace was given before you and I were even born. Before we chose Christ, He chose us. Paul says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Why are we saved from the wrath? Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Grace is teleos. It's finished. You can't go to purgatory and purchase more grace. You can't live a little bit better tomorrow than you did yesterday to buy just a little extra measure of grace. You have all the grace you could possibly ever need and more. We have the complete grace of Jesus and we don't buy it and we don't earn it. It is given freely by Jesus. Nobody contributes to their salvation. We just receive it. And it is finished. Now we're close to this day. We're close to the day when His justice is going to be poured out. His grace already was. His justice is coming. And I believe we're very close. And I'm not talking about in terms of chapters in our study of Revelation. I believe we're close in terms of days. Possibly hours, maybe minutes, maybe even seconds. But He's coming. And I want to be ready. Like we talked about this morning, I want to be on that highway to Zion. I want to be one of the sojourners whose eyes are wide open waiting for Jesus to come. Why? Because I already am poured, covered with His grace. And I will not experience His wrath, and neither will you if you walk in Christ. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and for blessing us and pouring out, not wrath, which is what we deserve, but pouring out grace for us. Jesus, we thank You personally for taking the cup of the fierce wrath of God, for drinking the sour wine of fury and rage and wrath that belongs to us. And we thank you for finishing the work and completing it. And now, Lord, we desire to walk in that grace. I pray that you will complete your work in each of our lives so that whether we die or we are alive at the time of your return, you will look at us and you will say, well done, and you will receive us into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.